Congregation, why do we have liturgical forms in the back of our Psalter? Why do we read a form before the administration of baptism? Why do we read a form before the administration of the Lord's Supper? And the answer is very simple. That our forefathers were very concerned that unless they clearly summarized the teaching of Scripture regarding these sacraments, that very quickly the church would depart from the essential truths that are communicated in the sacraments. And we may believe that in the history of the Reformed Church, God has used the forms to preserve those essential truths that pertain to the sacraments. The sacraments have always been a sensitive issue in the church. Already shortly after the Reformation, there were serious, there was serious conflict, serious misunderstanding. Think alone of, of Luther, who refused to even dialogue with Zwingli could not agree on the very nature of the Lord's Supper. So there's a reason why we also have the form for baptism. When I address the parents, the first thing that I will read to them is that questions are going to be asked of them to make sure that this is not happening out of form or custom or out of superstition. And the reason that language is there because they realized that that danger is very, very real. And that's why we need to appreciate what has been articulated in this form. Because the danger is that whenever baptism is administered, we've heard this form so many times that perhaps we can almost anticipate the next line. And that's why, with your consistory's permission, I will today begin with a paragraph-by-paragraph exposition of this form. So it will be like a catechism sermon, because that's what catechism preaching is. In catechism preaching, as you know, we take, a, we take the wide-angle lens and look at all of Scripture and that's what this form does as well. This form encompasses all the truths that are found from Genesis to Revelation regarding God's covenant and specifically about this particular form. And so I will do my utmost that as I focus on each paragraph to show you that the language comes from Scripture itself so that we will develop an appreciation for the wonderful content of this form. This form is so rich. This form is is a precious gem of the Reformation. We need to realize that. So the form itself, if I can just say something very briefly about its history, our form that we use today was compiled by the Dutch preacher Petrus Datenus. And he is known in the Netherlands also for a rhymed version of the Psalms, which is still sung in some churches. But he was instrumental of bringing the rich, the rich teaching of the Reformation from Geneva to the Netherlands. 
He is the one who brought the Reformed literature that had been developed by Kelvin and his associates, and he brought that to the Netherlands. And part of what he did, he also provided the church with these liturgical forms. So very quickly, this form, as you will see tonight, first of all consists of a doctrinal form. We're going to be focused on the doctrine of baptism. Then it is followed by a more practical form, and it includes several prayers. So we do know that the doctrinal part of this form came from the Palatinate. The Palatinate was that region that was governed by Frederick III, which was the place where also the Heidelberg Catechism was composed. And interestingly, the very men who were involved in the composition of the Heidelberg Catechism were involved in the composition of these liturgical forms as well. And so ultimately, the doctrinal part comes from the Palatinate, and really behind it all is John Calvin. This is Calvin's theology that is expressed in the doctrinal section of the form. The prayer is taken from a form that was used by Ulrich Zwingli. So Zwingli, of course, was the Swiss reformer. And then finally, the questions are modeled after the questions that were formulated by John Alasko. He was a, a Polish a preacher. Jan Alasky was his Polish name. And he became well known as the pastor of the refugee congregation in London. Uh, a, a reformed congregation in London and that became very influential also in the history of the reformed churches of the Netherlands. And so Petrus Detain, he took the useful parts of these various, various forms and compiled it into the form that we have today. So what's important to understand, congregation, is that our forefathers, in formulating this, wanted to make it crystal clear that baptism is a sacrament. What does that mean? So what is a sacrament? Perhaps you remember, boys and girls, sacraments are like visual aids. So when your teacher wants to teach you something, your teacher will often use visual aids. We'll use maps, pictures, PowerPoint presentations, visual aids to help you understand what's being taught. And so God has given his church two visual aids, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the purpose of both sacraments is to visually affirm the truths of God's word. Ultimately, each sacrament encompasses the entire body of gospel truth. And by means of the sacraments, God wants to strengthen the faith of his children, faith that is often so weak, by reassuring them visibly and tangibly of the truthfulness of his word. And so what that means is this congregation, that baptism the sacrament of baptism is not in the first place about the children that are being baptized. Of course, what happens is significant, as we will point out later. But baptism, let me put it this way, I said it to the parents as well. 
God uses the baptism of our children as an occasion to signify and seal the truths of the gospel. So the baptism of our children is a means to an end. And as we read the form, we will actually see that this is emphasized. In other words, I'll give you an example. Um, the paragraph that comes just before the prayer, the first prayer. Listen carefully what it says. That therefore this holy ordinance of God may be administered, number one, to his glory, number two, to the edification of his church, number three, to our comfort. It doesn't even mention the children, not suggesting that that's not important. But they understood, they understood that this sacrament, this sacrament has been ordained by God in order to communicate to us who he is as the God of salvation, as the God of the covenant. And so this sacrament also tonight will be administered to his glory, to our comfort, and to the edification of his church. And that's why it's important to understand <coughs> that the opening section of that form, the section that comes before the heading, it says, to the infants of the congregation. That opening section is the doctrinal section. In that opening section, the form addresses the entire congregation. In that opening section, the form communicates what the sacrament of baptism means for the entire congregation. And why do I emphasize that? Because very often, people read. They will read this form with a pair of Baptist glasses on their nose. They will read this form as if in its opening language, it is talking about the children are to be baptized. Well, it's clear from the form that our form does not address that until we get to the second half of the form. And so what the opening section, what the opening segment of the form means to communicate is that this is what God wants to communicate to his people. So in other words, who are, ultimately, who are the real beneficiaries of baptism? Only those who by grace have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. That's true for all the sacraments. We can only benefit from the sacraments, also the Lord's Supper, only by faith do we reap the benefit of the sacraments. And so my desire is, congregation, as your pastor, is that you would grow to appreciate the sacrament of baptism as much as you appreciate the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. If we grasp the significance of what happens there, we grasp the significance of what God is affirming also by means of this sacrament, it should be not only for his glory, but it should be to your comfort and to the edification of his church. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to briefly focus on the opening paragraph, the foundational paragraph of this form, which is highly significant. So in your Psalter books, let's turn to 
page 126, please. Let's read that opening paragraph together. Words with which we are very familiar, but words we need to consider tonight. The principal parts of the doctrine of holy baptism are these three. First, that we with our children are conceived and born in sin and therefore are children of wrath insomuch that we cannot enter into the kingdom of God except we are born again. This, the dipping in or sprinkling with water teaches us whereby the impurity of our souls is signified and we admonished to loathe and humble ourselves before God and seek for our purification and salvation without ourselves. And so this is foundational. So the, the form begins by saying, what is the foundational message for the sacrament of baptism? And it tells us, summarizing God's word, first of all, it signifies the natural state of our soul. We, with our children, are conceived and born in sin. Secondly, it admonishes us to acknowledge the condition of our soul. And it's explained, talks about the impurity of our souls. It talks about how we are to, how we are to humble ourselves. It tells us that our condition is such that we are born as children of wrath who cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven unless we are born again. So it signifies the natural state of our soul. It admonishes us to acknowledge what the true condition of our soul is, and it urges us to seek a remedy for our soul and seek for our purification and salvation without ourselves. That means outside of ourselves. So let's briefly focus on these three truths. So what that means, congregation, a proper reflection on baptism should greatly humble us. Because baptism, in the first place, is a reminder of our sinnership. Notice how it begins. We, with our children. So this it means all of us. We are reminded of who we are in Adam. We are reminded of how we are born into this world. Baptism reminds us that we are born and conceived in sin. It tells us three things, three truths about our natural state. It tells us that we are sinners from the moment of our conception. It tells us that therefore we are subject to the wrath of God. And it tells us that because we are sinners, we are excluded from the kingdom of God except we are born again. First of all, we are conceived and born in sin. What a humbling reality that is. That means that we as parents bring forth sinful children into this world. Because we ourselves are sinners. 
And our children, our precious children, receive that sin nature from us. Behold, David said it, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. What a humbling reality that is. That we, all we can do as parents, all we can do is bring forth a sinful seed. And so what this form echoes is what God's Word teaches. And so baptism confronts us with how God views us. How God views us as parents and how God views our children. Job said in Job 14, verse 4, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean, not one? Born and conceived in sin. Those children look so precious. And they look so very, very innocent. But they are not. Pastor Vody you may some of you may know of him, he has a rather striking description of our children. I think really that makes the point. You know, he said it this way. Listen carefully. He said, our children are vipers in diapers. Vipers in diapers. It makes the point. They seem so innocent. But God views them as children of Adam. He sees in that innocent child a heart that is utterly hostile to him. He sees in that child a heart that is desperately wicked. Ultimately, every child that is born is a potential Adolf Hitler, is a potential Stalin. As I said this morning, the depravity, the human depravity that manifests itself, all has its origin in the human heart. That's true for our children. That's why the sacrament of baptism ought to be a very humbling experience. Because if we were not sinners, there would be no need for the sacrament of baptism. So baptism confronts us with our sinnership. It confronts us with the reality that our children are born as children of wrath. That's a very sobering thought. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2, when he writes to the Ephesians, he tells those believers, remember, when you look at the people of the world, you were just like that. We, too, were children of wrath. <coughs> commentator that I read this afternoon said this. Our, all of our children are born with a death sentence. Think about that. Our children are born with a death sentence. Because the wages of sin is death. Children of wrath. That's an unsettling truth, but it's true. And we need to talk about the wrath of God. Because we tend to make light of sin, even the sin of our children. The form is saying, echoing the word of God, that the sin nature that that little infant has is so obnoxious in the sight of God, it provokes him to wrath. 
That's why it says in John 3, verse 36, but it describes the unbeliever, he that believeth not the Son, the wrath of God abideth on him. And so as we are born and conceived in sin, as we are born as hostile sinners, we are under the wrath of God. And we need to understand as parents, as grandparents, that precious child of ours, that precious grandchild of ours, is born with a death sentence. And that unless God in His grace transforms that child, that child is destined to perish forever. That's what makes having children so very, very serious. And the wrath of God, congregation, as you know, the wrath of God is not inconsistent with the love of God. The God of infinite love is a God of infinite wrath. Because what is the wrath of God? Listen carefully. The wrath of God is not one of God's attributes because had there been no sin, there would have been no wrath. But what is the wrath of God? It's the response of all God's attributes to sin. God's attributes, God's character is such that he can only respond to sin in one way, and that is in wrath. It provokes him to wrath. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ had to endure on Calvary's cross the unspeakable outpouring of God's wrath upon him to be the Savior of sinners. Parents, when you look at your children, grandparents, when we look at our grandchildren, we need to, every time we see them, we need to pray for them and we realize that without the grace of God, this precious child of mine is on a trajectory that will bring them to hell itself. And that's why it says, our situation is so serious that in so much we cannot enter the kingdom of God except we are born again. But you see, that's the wonderful message of baptism, that God declares that He is willing to do in the lives of such children as ours who are born under the wrath of God, that by His grace He is able to do what we cannot do for our children. And that he will see to it that from generation to generation, fallen sons and daughters of Adam are born again and are made a new creature. So baptism reminds us of the absolute necessity of the new birth. And so the, the form is accurate when it says, without it, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. We just read that from the very lips of Christ himself in John 3. Without that new birth, the gateway to the kingdom of heaven is closed. It reminds us that in Adam, we were expelled from God's presence. In Adam, we were expelled from the garden. Now we are outcasts by nature. There is only one way in. There is only one way in which we can again enter into that kingdom. There is only one way in which we can be restored in God's favor. 
And that is through the marvelous work of the new birth. And that's why the symbolism of the sprinkling of water is so significant. Sprinkling is a very prominent feature of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. And the sprinkling of water is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what we read in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26. Then, he says, God says, Will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And why is the sprinkling of water so symbolic? Because you see what you have is that we have the application of an outside source that is being applied to that child. That sprinkling of water symbolizes the applying work of the Holy Spirit. Because the sacrament of baptism signifies the work of regeneration. It signifies the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. But we need to go on. It says it teaches us whereby the impurity of our souls is signified, and we admonished to loathe and humble ourselves before God. That's not very flattering language. So the, when, I, when, when I administer the sacrament of baptism, we are admonished by that sacrament. We are admonished that we are impure. We are admonished by that sacrament that we must view ourselves the way God sees us. Again, that's what the sacrament of baptism communicates. This is, it communicates how God views us. Congregation, it's so important in your and my life that we view ourselves the way God views us. That we recognize the despicableness of our sinnership. That we would echo the words of David, I quoted him this morning already, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. But not only to Acknowledge the impurity of our souls. It says here to loathe and to humble ourselves before God. You see, that's why the gospel is so very unflattering. The gospel tells us the truth about ourselves. The gospel tells us how God views us. And when that becomes real to us experientially, we begin to loathe ourselves. That's one of the evidences of the renewing grace of God. By nature, we do not loathe ourselves. We may not like the consequences of sin, but we do not hate sin itself. But when the Spirit of God opens our blind eyes, we begin to loathe ourselves. We would echo the words of Jeremiah 3, verse 25. I <clears throat> down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. What a miracle it is when a sinner 
begins to loathe himself. What a miracle it is that a sinner begins to humble himself before God. Because by nature, we are very proud. Even in our sinnership, we are proud creatures. By nature, we think highly of ourselves. So what is pride really? You know what pride is? Pride is the worship of yourself. By nature, we are worshippers of ourselves, worshippers of our qualities, worshippers of our accomplishment, worshippers of ourselves. Pride is self-worship. And that's because of our fallen nature. Because in Adam, we believed the lie that we would be as God. But when the Spirit of God opens our eyes for who we really are in the sight of God, when we begin to see ourselves the way God sees us, then we will begin to loathe and humble ourselves before God. So what this opening paragraph does, it reminds us of how God views us. It exposes our utter nakedness before God. And why is that so important? Because without that understanding, without that realization of our sinnership and all of its vileness, without realizing that without the grace of God, we are subject to the wrath of God and that we cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Without that realization, we will never value the gospel that's communicated by the sacrament of baptism. That's why it says here, why do, we need to, why do we need to acknowledge all of this? So that we will seek for our purification and salvation without ourselves, outside of ourselves. And so what the authors of this form did, what Kelvin and his associates did, they first paint the pitch black background of who we are we are in ourselves. And we need to be reminded of that over and over again. Even God's children need to be confronted with that time and again. Time and again we need to be reminded who we are and remain in ourselves. Time and again we need to be confronted that in baptism God confronts us with His indictment against us so that we will marvel and what God has provided in His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we will seek for our salvation outside of ourselves in Christ. That's why the form begins by saying the principal parts of the doctrine of holy baptism are these three. And you, when you look in your book, there are three sections. And so the first section deals with how great as sins or miseries are. What does it mean to be a sinner? The second section deals with the marvelous salvation that a triune God has provided for sinners. And then the third section speaks of the obligation of the believer, how they should walk in gratitude for such a salvation unveiled also in the sacrament of baptism. So the structure of this doctrinal section mirrors the Heidelberg Catechism, and by the way, it mirrors the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper as well. 
So again, the three components, those three essential components of true spiritual life. How great my sins and miseries are, how I may be delivered from that misery in and through Christ, and how I show my gratitude for such a deliverance. And so we must seek purification and salvation outside of ourselves. And also God's children, believers, need to be reminded of this time and again. Because we are so inclined to look for something within ourselves, to rest in something within ourselves. And there's a lifelong work of the Holy Spirit to teach us that we must look outside of ourselves, that there is nothing in us that commends us to God's favor. And so baptism compels us to come to grips with who we are in and of ourselves so that by renewal we wholeheartedly look to Christ alone for our purification and for our salvation. And it is against that background, you see, that Christ becomes so precious not only once but over and over again. That's why in the lives of God's children, that cycle repeats itself over and over again. Time and again, the Spirit of God will confront us with our sinnership. And that's painful, that's unsettling, but it's necessary because He uses that to again refocus our attention upon the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the life of the believer progresses, Each time the Spirit sheds more light on our sinnership. Why? To shed more light on the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more we get to know of ourselves, the more precious Christ becomes. And the more we learn to look without ourselves, to look outside of ourselves for our purification and for our salvation. And then the sacrament of baptism becomes so beautiful, as we will see, as we begin to unfold the other section. Because then in this sacrament, God is declaring to a sinful people, to sinful parents, with sinful children, that for Christ's sake, He is the God of salvation. And by means of the sacrament, He affirms time and again that all of his promises are yea and amen in Christ. That for Christ's sake, he will continue to build his church. That for Christ's sake, he will continue to fulfill the promise that he already made to Abraham. Abraham, I will be a God unto you and to your seed. And then you see, there is expectation for vipers and diapers. There's expectation for our sinful seed, for our sinful children born and conceived in sin and who are subject to the wrath of God unless they are born again. And what God declares, that what we see with our eyes, the sprinkling of water upon the forehead of that child, God is saying, what you are seeing, I will 
will do in every generation of my people. I will prove to be a covenant-keeping God. And parents, grandparents, that's our encouragement. That's what we may wrestle with. We may wrestle with that at the throne of grace as we wrestle for the souls of our precious children. As we confess before God, Lord, my children are sinners because I am a sinner. My children have been born and conceived in sin because of me. And my children will perish unless thou dost redeem them, unless thou dost conquer them by thy grace. And that's why many, many parents, and rightfully so, begin praying for their children before they're even born. Know that that child growing in the womb has been conceived in sin. That's the beauty about baptism, congregation. By means of baptism, God declares from the very outset of the lives of our children that He is the God of salvation. Our children need salvation now, not somewhere down the road. They're born and conceived in sin. And if they would die in their sins, even while they're infants, they will perish if they are not found in Christ. But the encouraging truth of baptism is that God declares visibly and audibly, I am the God of the covenant. I am the God of my people and their seed. And I am willing and able to be the God of your child. And God loves to be reminded of that. He loves to be reminded of his own promises. He loves it. He's delighted when you bow your knees and when you come before him and you wrestle for the souls of your children and of your grandchildren. I'm hoping that as we work our way through this form that you will begin to realize how rich it is. As a matter of fact, the next section is probably the most beautiful statement in all of confessional literature about the Trinity of God. So when we read the entire form, pay attention to what it says about God's triune being. And so as I I conclude, congregation, do you believe the truth that baptism confronts you with? Do you believe your sinnership? Is your sinnership real, experientially real? Do you realize how unclean you are in the sight of God? Have you ever learned to loathe yourselves in God's sight, in God's presence, as David did in Psalm 51? But also have you learned to look without yourself, outside of yourself, to the Lord Jesus Christ because ultimately this sacrament is about him and also the intention of this sacrament is to encourage you to look without yourself to that one and only name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Amen.